Brother Randy gave me the, I was going to say call, but text, you know, it's easier to do these days. Um, our text this morning is Psalm 77. Um, I will read it and then we will open it up and consider it together. Psalm 77. Hear the word of our Lord. To the choir master, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of Asaph. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled I, that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Selah. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. What do you do when the experiences of life bring you to doubt or question God, his goodness, his faithfulness, or even his love? What do you do when you're overwhelmed with what's going on around you and you're tempted to despair? Or how do you deal with the troubles you face that seem to plunge you into the dark valleys of the soul? We can look around us and we can see that secular psychology rushes to diagnose these things and quickly medicates them away. Secular culture says drown it with your desires, whether it's entertainment, whether it's shopping, whether it's alcohol, drugs, or eating, whatever it may be, just something to distract yourself from the moment. Other religions say make amends for it. Work yourself up to be able to please the gods that they may be favorable to you, to ignore it or to point you inward saying you have the power to overcome the troubles in your own life. But when we look at modern Christianity, many have taken on those ideas and applied them to the church and how we live our daily lives before Christ. Christians dealing with doubt, despair, and depression are often looked at as inferior, as weak believers. Doubts and questions from life's trials are suppressed, and Christianity is often presented as something that takes all your troubles away. Come to Jesus and life will be easy, is what we often hear or see on TV oftentimes. This leads to a culture within churches that ignores the dark valleys of life and only looks for the mountaintop experiences. This leaves many people hurting and confused. Some people are left to feel like they have to put on a happy face, ignoring the pain and sorrow that they truly are experiencing, or many are sent out from the church thinking that their questions, doubts, and troubles are not welcome there. But that's not what we see in the Bible. 
The Bible presents us with a real picture of life in a world broken by sin. And this is a great apologetic for Christianity, that it makes sense of all of life, that it makes sense of reality, that we don't have to ignore things and say, well, you know, I don't really think that applies here. You know, God can't do anything with that. Let's just talk about these things over here that make sense to us. Scripture acknowledges the mountaintop experiences of praise and peace, as well as the dark valleys of doubt and despair. And there's no better place to see that than in the Psalms. That's why we're turning to a psalm this morning. In a formal sense, the psalms have been the prayer and praise book of the people of God throughout the centuries, even today, even the church today. But that's not all it is. When we look at the psalms, they are perpetually relevant to the people of God. David Pallison writes, The psalms are designed to be exactly what we need in the moment. Not only that, but the psalms connect you to the sorrows and joys of saints in history, Christ's own sufferings, and give us a way to approach the Father when we don't have the energy or the words. So the psalms are for you for today. Psalms are also comforting because they remind us that we're not alone. As we read the psalms, we hear the emotions that we've been feeling, or we hear the cries that we want to cry out, and we see God working even in the midst of those. That there's, no, that there's nothing that's come to us that has overtaken us that's common to man. We hear our brothers in the Psalms echoing the same things that we're dealing with and God working in and through them in that. Um, I love how John Calvin um, introduces the Psalms or speaks of the Psalms in his introduction to his commentary on the Psalms. He calls them an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. He says, for in them there is not an emotion in which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has here drawn to the life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. That's what Calvin says. I think that's so helpful to think about. That's what we find here in the Psalms. It's not just always praise and happiness. There are sorrowful times. There are times that drive us to the Lord, and we're thankful for that, that the psalm speaks to us that. And that's the reason we're returning to a psalm, this psalm, this morning, to answer the question that we began with, or the questions we began with. In summary, what do we do when we find ourselves in the troubles of life? Here in Psalm 77, and really throughout the psalms, we see echoed, In the day of your trouble, look to the Lord, for He alone is our hope and comfort. So how do we look to the Lord in the midst of our troubles? Let's consider how this psalm leads us through the dark valleys of despair to gazing upon our great God. The way that we'll do this, we'll look at this psalm, and if you look at it, you see the, the musical notation there, the selah, is broken basically into four stanzas. And we'll follow those four stanzas to walk through this psalm together to understand how do we, in troubles, look to the Lord. So in the first stanza here in verses 1 through 3, we're introduced to Asaph's trouble. To understand this a little better, we want to know a little bit about Asaph and about this psalm. Um, Asaph, coming from the tribe of Levi, was appointed as one of the chief musicians um, by King David over the nation of Israel. He was to be basically the worship leader of Israel, writing music for them, leading them in song, leading them before the Lord in worship. Several of Asaph's psalms we see is accredited with Psalm 73 to 84, some, some powerful psalms, full of emotion, full of, of working out things before God and finding resolution in God. Um, many of them are. Um, but we see that he, he, several of them are referred to as psalms of lament. And that's basically where the psalmist is, is crying out to God with a problem um, when he's in great distress and he has nowhere to turn to but God. 
Just lamentations. That's what the book of Lamentations is about. Jeremiah crying out to God because of what's happening in Jerusalem. Um, but what many psalms of lament um, are happening here. James Montgomery Boyce says of Asaph, one thing you have to say about Asaph, he tells it like it is. He's respectful, but if he's unhappy or puzzled about what God is doing or not doing in the lives of his people, he says so. And that's helpful to us, that we can be real about the things that we're going through, that God is open to us coming to him about these things. Psalm 77, as you probably picked up by now, is a psalm of lament. And here we find Asaph greatly troubled, greatly distressed, and in great need. So what is Asaph's trouble? Verse 1 serves as an introduction to the rest of the psalm, what is about to be laid out there. And here Asaph commends prayer to us, not as a mere casual conversation of just talking to a buddy, um, but he says, I cry aloud to God. He's not just saying, I went in my prayer closet and you know, bowed my head and went to pray. No, he's crying aloud to God. Spurgeon said, Asaph did not run to man but to the Lord, and when he went, not, he went not with studied, uh, stately, stilted words, but with a cry, the natural, unaffected, unfeigned expression of pain. We don't have to get all fancy and, and, and come up with a special voice to pray to God and, and have all kind of special words to God. We can cry out to the Lord in our time of need. And that's what Asaph is commending here for us to do. But he not only commends prayer to us, but he also encourages us to pray with the great comfort that God will hear us. He says here, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. What a great encouragement that is. What wondrous grace of God, not only that we may as his children come boldly before the throne um, to him, but that he's attentive to our prayers. It's not just some ritual thing that we do to say words to God and we check off a list, but he's attentive to those prayers. God hears our prayers. What great encouragement that is to pray. What a great privilege prayer truly is. And what a great reminder that whatever you're going through, you are not alone. The sovereign God hears you. Your loving, loving Heavenly Father is attentive to you. But he goes on. What's the substance of his prayer? Verse 2, in the day of trouble I seek the Lord. Something's happened in Asaph's life that is causing him trouble. It's really ambiguous here or general enough to where it can cover really anything. It doesn't define what it is, and we don't have a historical note there in the psalm as some of the psalm titles have for us. But in the day of his trouble, he seeks the Lord. We're not sure if it's something personal or national, something happening to the nation of Israel. Uh, maybe it's sickness or the consequences of sin. Maybe it's a personal or national tragedy. We're unsure. But he goes on intensifying the explanation, saying that it was not only merely a bad morning or afternoon, not just an upset stomach that he got over later, but in the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. This may indicate some kind of physical distress being the source of trouble, or maybe it's just an effect from whatever the trouble is. He's just groaning inwardly because of the trouble that he's facing. Either way, the quietness of night and the opportunity to rest is no consolation to him. Going further, this trouble is so burdensome, it is not something he can brush off as, as his soul refuses to be comforted. So there's times, even in prayer, where whatever trouble we're going through, not that we shouldn't pray and bring that before the Lord, but our souls refuse to be comforted. That is calling us to continue to cry out, continue to rest in the Lord. And that's where Asaph's at. He could not rest until he found understanding or solution to his trouble. But what, notice what he doesn't do. 
unable to find comfort, and he did not turn to those things which promise peace and comfort, but are only illusions of such, mere distractions from the hard issues of life. He continued to press in toward God, looking to the Lord. He continues revealing the depth of his trouble, that even his remembering God causes him to ache and be overwhelmed. He says, when I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. And this may seem strange to hear from one of God's people that, that that's the way they're talking in relation to God. But Asaph's trouble is so consuming that when he thinks of God's goodness, it seems distant. Thoughts of God's holiness seems fearful. And remembering God's might you know, scares him. This day of trouble, this life circumstance, has Asaph crying out, troubled, inconsolable, and overwhelmed. And this is Asaph's trouble, yet it addresses the troubles in our life as well. The general nature of this trouble presented here, because he doesn't define it, he didn't say, you know, I just had a bad day at work, then we would just have to think about a bad day at work. Being general enough, it covers all the troubles in life that we would face as well. So when we think about that, there is not a person in this room, nor will there be, that, that won't face or is facing a day, a week, a month, a year, or even years of trouble. And the Bible promises that we will face trouble in this life, that we ought not be surprised by the fiery trials that face us. We know they're coming, especially as we seek to live for Christ. We will face persecution as the Bible promises us. But there are many sources of trouble that we may face, not just persecution, but there's many troubles in life. And we have many different categories, physical troubles. It could be illness. It could be viruses. It could be chronic or, or injury pain. It could be life situations, you know, changing things in life, a change of job, having a child, having more children. Um, that, that changes things in life that, that bring different trials to us. Psychological troubles. Um, it could be worry. It could be anxiety. It could be spiritual troubles. It could be sin or lack of repentance. Emotional troubles. Um, relational troubles. Societal troubles. Political troubles. Whatever you consider a trouble, this psalm is speaking to that. And we could go on and on and on in defining these things, but we all face days of trouble, and each one has the potential to bring us to the dark valleys like Asaph here. David Murray, in his book, Christians Get Depressed Too, writes concerning five areas of our lives, our life situation, our thoughts, our feelings, our bodies, and our behavior. And he says these five areas are all interrelated. We cannot separate our thoughts from our feelings or our feelings from our behavior. What we think affects how we feel. What we think and feel affects our physical health. Our thoughts, feelings, and physical health affect what we do. We are sinners living in a sin-cursed world amongst other sinners. There's going to be days of trouble. We have, to, we have to understand that. So how will you face them? How will you look to the Lord when he appears hidden in your trials? Whatever your trouble, this psalm is for you. It is about you. That you may know how to walk faithfully through the trials of life and find hope and comfort in the Lord. So there we saw Asaph's trouble. Next, stands in verses 4 through 9. And we see Asaph's folly. Here we see Asaph attempting to think through and to interpret his own trouble or understand his own trouble um, for himself. The, moon dar- the mood darkens as he continues, as we see the impact of the trouble. He's unable to sleep. He's unable to speak. Um, and unable to rest, Asaph turns to the pastified comfort. He looks back in nostalgia to look at better days, to think about um, how much better those were, but he can't even find consolation in that because in comparison, the present day just erases his memories. In verses 5 through 6, it says, I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. 
It is Asaph's inward focus that we find his folly. If we look at these first six verses, we look at the personal pronouns being used here. 20 times he speaks of himself, and only six times does he refer to God. Asaph's folly is that when, he's, when he was focusing on himself, his trouble, his feelings, and he's trying to interpret everything going around him on his own. He's not looking to the Lord. He's not looking to the Word of God to help him to understand what's going on. He's just using his feelings and his circumstances to dictate what truth is rather than the God who is truth. And this became poisonous for Asaph as his aching mind used his trouble as a lens or a framework to interpret these things. We see that it brings him to conclude his own conclusions about God and he cries out, Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Again, James Montgomery Boyce helps us here. He says, even to ask such questions is to answer them. The answer is, of course not. Of course not. God does not change. God does not break his promises. His mercies are new every morning. Therefore, if the psalmist does not believe that God is favorable, it must be because he is seeing things incorrectly. The problem, or he, the psalmist, is the one who is wrong, not God. And that's helpful for us as we think about these things that, yeah, we're going to be wrong sometimes in the way that we interpret our own situations, especially if we're doing that apart from God and his word. And how wrong Asaph was when he asked those questions. And in Exodus, or wrong theologically, Exodus 34 Verses 6 through 7, the Lord revealed himself to Moses saying, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty. So how can the Lord who is long-suffering spurn forever? How can the God who is good be favorable no more? How would Yahweh who is merciful cease to show mercy? How would the promises of the Lord who is faithful come to fail? How can he who is gracious forget to be gracious? And how might our God who forgives sin continue in anger toward his own? When we, were, when we were reminded earlier from the bulletin of announcement of pardon, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. These are the things that we must keep before us. And in answer to those questions, he cannot. He will not forevermore because he does not change. But lest we scoff too quickly at Asaph's folly, it is often our folly as well. When greatly troubled, overwhelmed by life's dark valleys and in despair, we act or react in similar ways. We run to nostalgia. We want to think back on better days, trying to distract ourselves from the present. We allow our feelings and our heart to determine the truth rather than God himself. We look to our own experiences, the troubles that we're facing, and, and as the source of truth rather than the word of God. And we too in folly ask similar questions. We, we cry out, is God mad at me? Have I lost favor with God? How could God allow this to happen to one of his own children? Can I even be a child of God? Where is God in the midst of my pain and does he even care? Martin Lloyd-Jones helps us um, by explaining what this problem is or how this is working out in his book, Spiritual Depression. He talks about our, our main problem in this arena is that we're listening to ourselves too much. And if that sounds kind of strange, you wake up in the morning or you have stream, streamer thoughts or, or things that just pop up in your head trying to dictate truth of your life to you. Hey, you, this is happening to you. you know, God must be mad at you. God must be angry at you. Are you even a child of God? You know, the devil implanting, you know, tempting thoughts for you to doubt or to question him. 
Lloyd-Jones is saying our problem is that we're listening to ourselves too much and not talking to ourselves enough. And that may sound strange, but what he's saying, he's saying, well, let me read him. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. He says you have to take yourself in hand and you have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why art thou cast down? And what business do you have to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, and what God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. And that's what he's talking about here. The main problem in, in many of these respects when we're going through the troubles of life, when we enter into Asaph's folly like him, is that we begin to listening to ourselves too much in our circumstances rather than speaking truth to ourselves from the word of God. That this is who God is. This is what he's done for me in Christ. And this is who I am in him. And we rest in that even in the midst of our troubles. But there's also encouragement here found in Asaph's honesty. Nowhere in Scripture do you find a condemnation of the wrestlings of God's people with trouble, despair, or doubt. There's correction, yes, but not condemnation. And that's comforting to us. It tells us that God is not threatened by our questions, by our doubts, or our confusion concerning Him. Nor is it sin to come to Him and with questions and doubts if we're truly seeking those answers. Not as a skeptic trying to throw bombs at God, but as a wounded believer trying to understand what's going on, clinging fast to him. It reminds us that whatever leads us into those dark valleys, those troubles in life, do not come to us apart from our perfectly wise, perfectly good, and all-powerful Heavenly Father. Asaph's folly at this point and ours, if we stop here, is our focus being too fixed upon ourselves and our own ability to understand these things rather than seeing beyond these things and looking to the Lord. So while the fool says there is no God, we are no fool if in the day of trouble we look to the Lord, which brings us to this next section. The third stanza in verses 10 through 15 reveals Asaph's change. So we've seen kind of a downward spiral of Asaph, that he has a day of trouble, that he's seeking the Lord, but even in praying, he's found no answers, no consolation there. So he just, he's going further down into despair, but there's a change. How does Asaph rise out of the dark valley of self-pity and self-assessment? What changes for him? We see here in verse 10 through 12, it, it hinges the whole, there's an upward turn for the rest of the psalm, and it declares, Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. So acknowledging his trouble, He's ready to press forward. So where does he turn? He doesn't turn inward, as we've already said. He doesn't try to understand for himself. He turns to the years of the right hand of the Most High, to the works of the Lord and to his wonders of old. William Gurnall said, The hound, the hound dog, when he has lost his scent, hunts backwards and so recovers it and pursues his game with louder cry than ever. Thus, Christian, when thy hope is at a loss and you question your salvation in another world, then look backward and see what God hath already done for thee. And this is what Asaph does. In a day of trouble, he looked to the Lord and began to preach to himself the truth of God's word. So where did Asaph go? Where did he look back to um, to see the years of the right hand of the Most High, the works of the Lord, the wonders of old? And, and many examples could have come to his mind, and we could spend all day really digging into many examples that he could have brought up. 
But he doesn't just go to his own musings. He doesn't just go into his own memory. He turns to the Word of God. The rest of the psalm gives us hints where he turned to. He turned to the Torah, to the book of Moses, and in particular, the Exodus. So what did Asaph find? Verses 13 through 15 says, Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. So even in the midst of his trouble, Asaph began to see God more clearly by looking at his word. Not just by sitting there and struggling on his own, but giving, you know, going back to what God has provided for him. They have a sound record of who God is and what God had done. These verses echo Exodus 15, the song of Moses after God led them out of Egypt through the Red Sea on dry ground. In verse 11 and 13 of Exodus 15, Moses declared, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by the strength of your holy abode. So with these passages in mind, we see Asaph really pulling up three pictures of God that he preached to himself to help him rise out of the valley of despair. First, he sees that God is holy. Asaph said, your way, O God, is holy. God's holiness speaks of his purity, of his perfections, as well as his separateness and his otherness from all creation. And this can bring great fears. It did early on when when he was trying to understand these things himself. The holiness of God brought fear to him. But but understanding that God is holy um, is also a great comfort as well. For the God who is holy, when we're thinking about our trouble, only does that which is holy, right, and pure. So we want to question God, "Do do do you understand what's going on here? Is this right, what's happening to me? We rest in God's holiness. That means whatever trouble um, Asaph or we are facing has been allowed or brought to us by a God who can do no wrong. So we rest in his wisdom and his holiness. It may not make sense to us in the moment, but it's not confusing him. It's not caught him off guard. Secondly, Asaph saw a God who is great. He said, what God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. So as Asaph looked back to what God had done for his people, he saw the greatness of the Lord, the might of Yahweh to redeem his people. So what do we think here? We think of the plagues. We think of the crossing of the Red Sea. That they didn't have to, You didn't have to pull up their pants and, and wade through shallow water. No, they walked through walls of water on dry ground. I mean, that's, that's hard to conceive of. But we, we see the testimony of that over and over again in Scripture, the reality of that taking place, of God doing that. What a great God who work, works wonders. No one can stay his hand. No one can cause any of his purposes to be thwarted. He alone is great. But here again is great comfort to God's people. There is nothing or no one that can snatch us out of the Father's hand or to separate us from his love. Nothing. Go read Romans 8, the end of Romans 8. There is absolutely nothing. You can't even separate yourself from the love of God if he's called you to himself. So the Lord's omnipotence is our security, even in the midst of trouble. Lastly, or the thirdly, Asaph, remember that God is his redeemer. Verse 15 proclaims, you with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. So what was Asaph remembering? This has all been pointing toward this, the Exodus, how God delivered his people from Israel, um, or his people Israel from bondage in Egypt, um, slavery there by his mighty arm. 
He showed, his, him showed himself to be the one true God over all the gods of Egypt. He, oh, if you read through Exodus, you read through that, you see over and over again, he's going to do these things that they might know that I am the Lord God. And we, there was no question after all of this that he alone is the Lord. God alone redeems. To him alone belongs salvation. The Exodus was a great display of this, but was merely a shadow pointing to the great salvation accomplished through the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in his life, his sacrificial and substitutionary death, and his resurrection. So what changed for Asaph? Notice what didn't change. His circumstances didn't change. The troubles didn't change. We don't see in here, he says, well, okay, now my troubles, troubles are gone. He's still in the day of trouble. So that didn't change. What changed was his focus. What changed was his gaze. What changed was what he was resting on to understand and to get through the circumstances that, it, what, that he was facing. His thinking changed from self um, to God's character and work. Though his life was troubled, he was settled on the Lord. He was resting in who God is and what God has done and who he was to God. He was one of his redeemed when brought low and despairing by the day of trouble, we must turn from self and set our gaze upon God, His works, and that He's graciously revealed to us in His Word. We too, like Asaph, can look back at His wondrous deeds, at His mighty hand um, that was at work in Exodus and redeeming His people. But unlike Asaph, we can look at something else. We can look to a greater redemption, what the Exodus was actually pointing forward to um, in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We too can look back to God's word, look back at what God has done, and see the faithfulness of God to send His Son, Jesus Christ, on behalf of sinners who took on humanity that He could live the life that we should have lived in perfect obedience to the Father, who died a sacrificial death in our place for our sin and was resurrected that we might have new life in Him, be reconciled to God, and be set free from our bondage of sin, shame, and death through faith in Him. So when troubled, we can remember the God who is holy and does all things well. When troubled, we can meditate upon God, the God who is great and able to deliver or carry you through the troubles of life, who works all things according to the counsel of his will for the good of those that love him. And when troubled, you can rest in the Lord who redeemed you by his righteous life, death, and resurrection. He, Jesus Christ, is your great hope in the midst of trouble. So look to the Lord. Lastly, this last stanza brings us to Asaph's comfort. So he has a great hope. He has a great hope he, that he's, he's you know, God's child, or he's a part of the people of God. For us, you know, we have a great hope that we are the children of God, and we rest in that hope, looking forward to that day when Christ returns. But we don't just look forward, we look now, and we have a comfort here now. Here in grand poetic style, Asaph describes the passing of God's people through the Red Sea. He writes, when the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. I mean, if, we, if you go back and read Exodus, um, you don't get quite the picture, the same picture here, but in, in poetic style, he shows the chaos of the moment. And you can imagine that. If you were there, if you were the people of God, and you came to the edge of the Red Sea, and you saw this vast body of water, and you turned around and you saw Pharaoh's army coming after you, you knew you were done with. 
unless someone acted. Well, Moses couldn't do anything of his own. So who had to act? It was God. God who had already drew them out of Egypt by his mighty arm would continue to carry them through the trouble that they were facing. Um, but the, the chaos there, the, it seems like all of nature seemed unbridled. Uh, the waters were afraid, the deep tremble, thunder echoing, lightning flashing, the earth shaking. Yet in the middle of it all, we find God. Asaph says, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Although they did not see him in their midst, the people knew that God was there. As the walls of water were up and as they were walking through on dry ground, Asaph says here, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Yeah, it was Moses and Aaron that were walking with them. but It was God that was leading them through, working it every bit of it out to save his people. So herein lies Asaph's comfort in the day of trouble, that God is there with them or with him. Asaph did not, he was not contented or comforted by just knowing or thinking about God, which are comforting. It's good to know the great doctrines of Scripture. It's good to, 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 to have the knowledge of those things and to preach those things to you over and over again, but it's not a dead knowledge. It's a living faith that rests in the God who is there with you always, or here with you always, in the midst of your trouble, in the midst of peaceful times and troubled times. Um, Asaph was comforted um, by that. Asaph rested in the God who is holy, great, and redeems and is with him in the midst of trouble. So with the picture of chaos all around, all around we find God's way was not, when we think of the Exodus or, or parting of the Red Sea, um, God was not on the calm shore where his people weren't. It was not, he was not only in heaven looking down upon them, but his way was in the sea with his people. His way was in the chaos. His way was in the trouble with Asaph, whatever he was facing. And there Asaph saw that God great, God's great care for him. It was not that God removed the trouble or the chaos from Israel when they're leaving Egypt, but that he was there in the midst of them through it all. And that's what they wanted to know. What, what was happening when, when God was t- told Moses, hey, I'm, I'm tired of the stiff-necked people. Y'all go on, go on to the promised land, but I'm not going to go with you. What did Moses say? No, I don't want to go unless you're going to be with us. He knew the, the foolishness of that, to go and try to go enjoy anything apart from the presence of God. But not only was he there with them, he was leading them. And this was the way he had chosen for them to show his great power, wisdom, and goodness. Asaph's comfort is that God was with him in his trouble and that God would lead him through his trouble. But this is our great comfort as well. When we face the day, the week, the month, the years, or even years, whatever they may may be of trouble, our holy, great Redeemer God is with us. He will never leave or forsake us. He is there in the chaotic sea of life that tosses us to and fro. He is there. And he's not only there, he is graciously and wisely leading us into the sea and out again, clinging ever closer to him. It is said of Spurgeon that he once said regarding life's trials, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. When we think about that, whatever troubles may come, though we may not know the reason, we can trust the Father's hand in every trial and season. He leads you through the waters as he walks beside to carry his sons and daughters to the other side. His wisdom is an anchor to hearts that do despair. His might a sure foundation of his loving care. 
Though the deeps of life may tremble, do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God and Savior is with you all the way. We can't leave this psalm without seeing Christ more here. Seeing God's way in the sea, we're reminded of Christ who's led his disciples out into the Sea of Galilee and a storm arose and the wind kicked and they had to wake him up and they were scared to death in the trouble that they were facing. But Jesus, who was with them, spoke a word and everything was stilled. Yeah, he delivered them out of that trouble, but he was with them then. Yeah, we, we can look at the disciples and say, how foolish you were. Did you not know who was in the boat with you? They didn't understand at the time. They even questioned, who was this man that the storm the waves and the wind obey. But even more than thinking about God stealing the winds around us or the storm around us, we see that Jesus, the Son of God, entered our ultimate trouble by becoming like us in humanity, living amongst us. In his earthly life, he experienced all the pains and temptations of our life, yet was without sin so that he could be a sympathetic high priest, that he would know what you're going through. There's no trouble that you're facing where you can come before God and say, you don't understand me. He understands more than you understand. Come to him with everything. In his earthly... or he. Christ further experienced our troubles by taking on himself the punishment of God's wrath that we deserve for our sin. Just as God led his flock through judgment or through the sea, Christ, the good shepherd, um, who, who takes on our troubles um, by taking on those things for that judgment, that punishment of God's wrath that we deserved, um, laying down his life for the sheep. It was there that the Father was with the Son in the most tumultuous of seas, the judgment of the cross, the wrath that he endured for us, and thus Jesus even tasted death for us. It was there in our troubles that the Father did not let his Holy One see corruption, but was faithful to raise him from the dead because death could not hold him. So through all of this, when we think about our troubles in this life, through all of this, he has brought the greatest good out of our greatest trouble and continues to do so to this day. So we can trust him with the things that we face day in and day out. He is our great hope and he is our great comfort. So as your day of trouble comes or is now here, look to the Lord, preach to yourself the truths, and rest in the God who is holy, great, and has redeemed you. He is with you, he is leading you, and he never changes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word, that you have not let us, left us without a revelation of yourself. You have not let us, left us groping, groping blindly in the dark. But you have revealed yourself to us, and by your Spirit, you help us to know you. Lord, help us today in whatever troubles we may have or have had or will have, Lord, to look to you, clinging ever tightly to you, knowing you are holy, great, and a redeeming God who is with us, who cares for us, and hears our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen.